0: You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine, published in seventeen ninety four, excerpts edited by Arthur Me and J. A. Hamerton. In seventeen seventy four, Thomas Paine, thirty seven years of age, landed unknown and penniless in the American colonies. Born at Thetford, Norfolk, England, January twenty ninth, seventeen thirty seven, of poor Quaker parents, he had tried many occupations and had succeeded in none. Within two years, he had become an intellectual leader of the American Revolution. Beginning his literary career with an attack on slavery, he continued it in 1776 by publishing his pamphlet, Common Sense, which gave an electric inspiration to the cause of separation and republicanism among the colonists. After serving the new Commonwealth in office and with his pen, he went to France on an official mission in 1781, then returned to his native England, intent on furthering his views. In 1793, Paine wrote the first part of The Age of Reason, which aroused a storm of indignation, but undaunted, he added a second and a third part to the work, consisting mostly of amplifications of some of the contentions advanced in the first part, in the writing of which Paine had no Bible to consult. The book, the first part of which was published in 1794, the second part in 1795, and the third in 1801, is an exposition of deism on a purely scientific basis. The visible creation was everything to Paine in his reasonings. The religious hopes, fears, and aspirations of men were nothing at all. This universal human phenomenon was curtly dismissed by him as a universal human delusion. Many of his comments on the Bible were rather crude anticipations of the modern higher criticism. But in dealing with the Bible, Paine showed the animus of a prosecuting counsel rather than the impartiality of a judge. His stormy life ended on July 8, 1809. Part 1. Revealed Religion It has been my intention for several years past to publish my thoughts upon religion. As others of my colleagues and others of my fellow citizens of France have given me the example of making their voluntary and individual profession of faith, I also will make mine. And I do this with all that sincerity and frankness with which the mind of man communicates with itself. I believe in one God and no more, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man, and I believe that religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. All national institutions of churches appear to me no other than human invention set up to terrify and enslave mankind, and monopolize power and profit. Each of those churches shows certain books which they call Revelation or the Word of God. The Jews say that the Word of God was given to God by Moses face to face. The Christians say that their Word of God came by divine inspiration. And the Turks say their Word of God, the Koran, was brought by an angel from heaven. Each of these churches accuses the other of unbelief and for my own part, I disbelieve them all. As it is necessary to affix right ideas to words, I will, before I proceed further into the subject, offer some observations on the word revelation. Revelation, when applied to religion, means something communicated immediately from God to man. No one will deny or dispute the power of the Almighty to make such a communication if he pleases, but admitting for the sake of a case that something has been revealed to a certain person and not revealed to any other person, it is revelation to that person only. When he tells it to a second person, a second to a third, a third to a fourth, and so on, it ceases to be a revelation to all those persons. It is a revelation to the first person only and hearsay to every other. Consequently, they are not obliged to believe it, for they have only the word of the first person that it was made to him. The world has been amused with the terms revealed religion and the generality of priests apply this term to the books called the Old and the New Testament. There is no man that believes in revealed religion stronger than I do. But it is not the reveries of the Old and New Testament that I dignify with that sacred title. That which is a revelation to me exists in something which no human mind can invent, no human hand can counterfeit or alter. The Word of God is the creation we behold, and this Word of God revealeth to man all that is necessary for him to know his Creator. Do we want to contemplate his power? We see it in the immensity of his creation. Do we want to contemplate his wisdom? We see it in the unchangeable order by which the incomprehensible whole is governed. Do we want to contemplate his munificence? We see it in the abundance with which he fills the earth. Do we want to contemplate his mercy? We see it in his not withholding that abundance even from the unthankful. Do we want to contemplate his will, so far as it respects man? The goodness he shows to all is a lesson for our conduct to each other. In fine, do we want to know what God is? Search not the book called the Scripture which any human hand might make, but the Scripture called the Creation. Part 2. Theology and Religion as to the Christian system of faith, it appears to me as a compound made up chiefly of manism but with little deism, and as near to atheism as twilight is to darkness. That which is now called natural philosophy, embracing the whole circle of science of which astronomy occupies the chief place, is the study of the works of God and of the power and wisdom of God in his works, and is the true theology. As to the theology that is now studied in its place, it is the study of human opinions and of human fancies concerning God. It is not the study of God himself in the works that he has made, but in the works or writings that man has made. And it is not among the least of the mischiefs that the Christian system has done to the world that it has abandoned the original and beautiful system of theology, like a beautiful innocent, to distress and reproach to make room for the bag of superstition. It is an inconsistency scarcely possible to be credited that anything should exist under the name of a religion that held it to be irreligious to study and contemplate the structure of the universe that God had made. But the fact is too well established to be denied. The event that served more than any other to break the first link in the long chain of depotic ignorance is that known by the name of the Reformation by Luther. From that time, though it does not appear to have made part of the intention of Luther or of these who are called reformers, the sciences began to revive, and liberality, their natural associate, began to appear. This was the only public good the Reformation did, for with respect to religious good it might as well not have taken place. The mythology still continued the same, and the multiplicity of national popes grew out of the downfall of the Pope of Christendom. The prejudice of unfounded belief often degenerates into the prejudice of custom and becomes at last rank hypocrisy. When men from customer fashion or any worldly motive profess or pretend to believe what they do not believe, nor can give any reason for believing, they unship the helm of their morality and, being no longer honest in their own minds, they feel no moral difficulty in being unjust to others. It is from the influence of this vice, hypocrisy, that we see so many church and meeting-going professors and pretenders to religion so full of tricks and deceit in their dealings and so loose in the performance of their engagements— that they are not to be trusted further than the laws of the country will bind them. Morality has no hold on their minds, no restraint on their actions. One set of preachers make salvation to consist in believing. They tell their congregations that if they believe in Christ, their sin shall be forgiven. This, in the first place, is an encouragement to sin. In the next place, the doctrine these men preach cannot be true. Another set of preachers tell their congregations that God predestined and selected from all eternity a certain number to be saved and a certain number to be damned eternally. If this were true, the day of judgment is past, their preaching is in vain, and they had better work at something useful calling for their livelihood. Nothing that is here said can apply, even with the most distant disrespect to the real character of Jesus Christ, was a virtuous and an amiable man. The morality that he preached and practiced was of the most benevolent kind, and though similar systems of morality had been preached by Confucius and by some of the Greek philosophers many years before, by the Quakers since, and by many good men in all ages, it has not been exceeded by any. Part 3. The Bible If we permit ourselves to conceive right ideas of things, we must necessarily fix the idea not only of unchangeableness, but of the utter impossibility of any change taking place, by any means or accident whatever, in that which we would honor with the name of God, and therefore the word of God cannot exist in any written or human language. The continually progressive change to which the meaning of words is subject, the want of a universal language which renders translation necessary, the errors to which translations are again subject, The mistakes of copies and printers, together with the possibility of willful alteration, are of themselves evidences that human language, whether in speech or in print, cannot be the vehicle of the Word of God. The Word of God exists in something else. It has been the practice of all Christian commentators on the Bible, and of all Christian priests and preachers, to impose the Bible on the world as a mass of truth and as the Word of God. They have disputed and wrangled and have anathematized each other about the supposable meaning of particular parts and passages therein. One has said and insisted that such a passage meant such a thing, another that it meant directly the contrary, and a third that it meant neither the one nor the other, but something different from both. And this they have called understanding the Bible." Now, instead of wasting their time and heating themselves in fractious disputations about doctrinal points drawn from the Bible, these men ought to know, and if they do not, it is civility to inform them, that the first thing to be understood is whether there is sufficient authority for believing the Bible to be the word of God or whether there is not. I therefore pass on to an examination of the books called the Old and the New Testament. The case historically appears to be as follows. When the church mythologists established their system, they collected all the writings they could find and managed them as they pleased. It is a matter altogether of uncertainty to us whether such of the writings as now appear under the name of the Old and the New Testament are in the same state in which these collectors say they found them, or whether they added, altered, abridged, or dressed them up. Be this as it may, they decided by vote which of the books out of the collection they had made should be the word of God, and which should not. They rejected several. They voted others to be doubtful, such as the books called the Apocrypha, and those books which had a majority of votes, they voted to be the Word of God. Had they voted otherwise, all the people since calling themselves Christians had believed otherwise, for the belief of the one comes from the vote of the other. Who the people were that did all this we know nothing of. They call themselves by the general name of the church, and this is all we know of the matter. There are matters in the Bible said to be done by the express command of God that are as shocking to humanity and to every idea we have of moral justice as anything done by Robespierre, by Carrier, by Joseph Leban in France, by the English government in the East Indies, or by any other assassin in modern times. Are we sure that the creator of man commissioned these things to be done? Are we sure that the books that tell us so were written by his authority? To read the Bible without horror— We must undo everything that is tender, sympathizing, and benevolent in the heart of man. Speaking for myself, if I had no other evidence that the Bible is fabulous than the sacrifice I must make to believe it to be true, that alone would be sufficient to determine my choice. But it can be shown by internal evidence that the Bible is not entitled to credit as the word of God. It can readily be proved that the first 5 books of the Bible attributed to Moses were not written by him nor in his time but several hundred years afterwards. Moses could not have described his own death nor mentioned that he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab. Similarly, the book of Joshua is not written by Joshua. It is manifest that Joshua could not write that Israel served the Lord not only in his days but in the days of the elders that overlived him. The book of Judges is anonymous on the face of it. The books of Samuel were not written by Samuel, for they relate many things that did not happen till after his death. The history in the two books of Kings, which is little more than a history of assassinations, treachery, and war, sometimes contradicts itself. And several of the most extraordinary matters related in Kings are not mentioned in the companion books of Chronicles. The book of Job has no internal evidence of being a Hebrew book. It appears to have been translated from another language into Hebrew, and it is the only book in the Bible that can be read without indignation or disgust. It is an error to call the Psalms the Psalms of David because historical evidence shows that some of them were not written until long after the time of David. The books of the prophets are wild, disorderly, and obscure compositions, the so-called prophecies in which do not refer to Jesus Christ but to circumstances the Jewish nation was in at the time they were written or spoken. I now go on to the book called the New Testament. Had it been the object of Jesus Christ to establish a new religion, he would undoubtedly have written the system himself, or procured it to be written in his lifetime. But there is no publication extant authenticated with his name. All the books called the New Testament were written after his death. He was a Jew by birth and profession, and he was the Son of God in like manner that every other person is, for the Creator is the Father of all. The first four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are altogether anecdotal. They relate events after they had taken place. They tell what Jesus Christ did and said, and what others did and said to him. And in several instances, they relate the same event differently. Revelation, therefore, is out of the question with respect to these books. The presumption, moreover, is that they are written by other persons than those whose name they bear. The book of Acts of the Apostles belongs also to the anecdotal part. All the rest of the New Testament except the book of enigmas called the Revelation are a collection of letters under the name of epistles and the forgery of letters under the name of epistles. One thing, however, is certain, which is that out of the matters contained in these books, together with the assistance of some old stories, the church has set up a system of religion very contradictory to the character of the person whose name it bears. They set up a religion of pomp and reverence and pretended imitation of a person whose life was humility and poverty. Part 4. Mystery, Miracle, and Prophecy I proceed to speak of the three principal means that have been employed in all ages and perhaps in all countries to impose upon mankind. These three means are Mystery, Miracle, and Prophecy. The two first are incompatible with true religion, and the third ought always to be suspected. With respect to mystery, everything we behold is, in one sense, a mystery to us. Our own existence is a mystery. The whole vegetable world is a mystery. We know not how it is that the seed we sow unfolds and multiplies itself. The fact, however, as distinct from the operating cause, is not a mystery because we see it. And we know also the means we are to use, which is no other than putting the seed in the ground. We know, therefore, as much as is necessary for us to know. And that part of the operation that we do not know, in which if we did we could not perform, the Creator takes upon Himself and performs it for us. But though every created thing is in this sense a mystery, the word mystery cannot be applied to moral truth any more than obscurity can be applied to light. The God in whom we believe is a God of moral truth and not of mystery. Mystery is the antagonist of truth. It is a fog of human invention that obscures the truth and represents it in distortion. Religion, therefore, being the belief of a God and the practice of moral truth cannot have connection with mystery. The belief of a God, so far from having anything of mystery in it, is of all beliefs the most easy because it arises to us at necessity. And the practice of moral truth, or in other words, a practical imitation of the goodness of God, is no other than our acting towards each other as he acts benignly towards all. When men, whether from policy or pious fraud, set up systems of religion incompatible with the word or works of God in the creation, they were under the necessity of inventing or adopting a word that should serve as a bar to all inquiries and speculations. The word MYSTERY Answered this purpose, and thus it has happened that religion, which in itself is without mystery, has been corrupted into a fog of mysteries. As mystery answered all general purposes, miracle followed as an occasional auxiliary. Of all the modes of evidence that ever were invented to obtain belief to any system or opinion to which the name of religion has been given, that of miracle is the most inconsistent. For, in the first place, whenever recourse is had to show, for the purpose of procuring that belief, It implies a lameness or weakness in the doctrine that is preached. And in the second place, it is degrading the Almighty into the character of a showman, playing tricks to amuse and make the people stare and wonder. It is also the most equivocal sort of evidence that can be set up, for the belief is not to depend upon the thing called a miracle, but upon the credit of the reporter who says that he saw it. And therefore the thing, were it true, would have no better chance of being believed than if it were a lie. As mystery and miracle took charge of the past and present, prophecy took charge of the future and rounded the tenses of faith. The original meaning of the words prophet and prophesizing has been changed. The Old Testament prophets were simply poets and musicians. It is owing to this change in the meaning of the words that the flight to metaphors of the Jewish poets and phrases and expressions now rendered obscure by our not being acquainted with the local circumstances to which they applied at the time they were being used have been erected into prophecies and made to bend explanations at the will and whimsical conceits of sectaries, expounders, and commentators. Everything unintelligible was prophetical. Part 5. Deism. From the time I was capable of conceiving an idea and acting upon it by reflection, I either doubted the truth of the Christian system or thought it to be a strange affair. It seems as if parents of the Christian profession were ashamed to tell their children anything about the principles of their religion. They sometimes instruct them in morals and talk to them of the goodness of what they call providence. But the Christian story of what they call God the Father putting his son to death or employing people to do it, for that is the plain language of the story, cannot be told by a parent to a child. And to tell him it was done to make mankind happier and better is making the story still worse and to tell him that all this is a mystery is only making an excuse for the incredibility of it. How different is this from the pure and simple profession of deism? The true deist has but one deity, and his religion consists in contemplating the power, wisdom, and benignity of the deity in his works, endeavoring to imitate him in everything moral, scientific, and mechanical. The religion that approaches the nearest of all others to true deism, in the moral and benign part thereof, is that professed by the Quakers. But they have contracted themselves too much by leaving the works of God out of their system. Though I reverence their philanthropy, I cannot help but smiling at the conceit that if the taste of the Quaker could have been consulted at the creation, what a silent and drab-colored creation it would have been. Not a flower would have blossomed its gaieties, not a bird been permitted to sing. Quitting these reflections, I proceed to other matters. Our ideas not only of the almightiness of the Creator, but of His wisdom and His beneficence, become enlarged as we contemplate the extent and structure of the universe. The solitary idea of a solitary world rolling or at rest in the immense ocean of space gives place to the cheerful idea of a society of worlds, so happily contrived as to administer, even by their motion, instruction to man. We see our own earth filled with abundance but we forget to consider how much of that abundance is owing to the scientific knowledge the vast machinery of the universe has unfolded. But what are we to think of the Christian system of faith that forms itself upon the idea of only one world? Alas, what is this to the mighty ocean of space and the almighty power of the Creator? From whence, then, could arise the solitary and strange conceit that the Almighty, who had millions of worlds equally dependent on his protection— should quit the care of all the rest and come to die in our world because they say one man and one woman had eaten an apple. It has been by rejecting the evidence that the word or works of God and the creation affords to our senses and the action of our reason upon that evidence that so many wild and whimsical systems of faith and of religion have been fabricated and set up. There may be many systems of religion that, so far from being morally bad, are in many respects morally good, but there can be but one that is true, and that one necessarily must, as it ever will, be in all things consistent with the ever-existing word of God that we behold in his works. I shall close by giving a summary of the deistic belief. First, that the creation we behold is the real word of God, in which we cannot be deceived it proclaims his power, it demonstrates his wisdom, it manifests his goodness and beneficence. Secondly, that the moral duty of man consists in imitating the moral goodness and beneficence of God manifested in the creation towards all his creatures. That seeing, as we daily do, the goodness of God to all men, it is an example calling upon all men to practice the same towards each other and consequently that everything of persecution and revenge between man and man, and everything of cruelty to animals, is a violation of moral duty. It is certain that, in one point, all nations of the earth and all religions agree. All believe in a God. The things in which they disagree are the redundancies annexed to that belief, and therefore, if ever a universal religion should prevail, it will not be in believing anything new— but in getting rid of redundancies and believing as man believed at first. But in the meantime, let every man follow, as he has a right to do, the religion and the worship he prefers.